Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. We are back talking about the highlights of the Cannes Film Festival, continuing our chat with critic Amy Talbin. Last time we were talking about The Velvet Underground, and now we move on to another musical selection, Annette, the new film from Leo's Carax, starring Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. We also devote some time to two movies that haven't been talked about as much in the frenzy of the festival's first week. First, Akiara from Jonas Carpignano, and Ari Folman's newest animated feature, Where is Anne Frank? There will be more to come on the podcast, including new films from Paul Verhoeven and Wes Anderson, so stay tuned to The Last Thing I Saw. And now, let's pick up again with Amy. Shall we talk about uh, another film? Sure. The opening film of the festival, of course, was Annette. Which is also a musical. <laughs> which is also a musical, yeah, it's true. And, I mean, it's funny, it's also, in a way, about two, it's also a story of two artistic personalities that end up clashing, you know, one of them being kind of, uh, I don't know, abrasive. <laughs> or, or, <laughs> and, and it also is a film about gender stereotypes and gender conflicts. Mm-hmm. So, um I guess most films are, so I don't know. (laughs) That's true, yeah. But I mean, yeah, the outline of the story um, is uh, you have a couple, Adam Driver playing a... Stand-up comic. A stand-up comic, but I was just trying to think what kind of comic. It's not not an insult comic uh, quite. It's, it's, you know, the kind, just where he kind of comes out and is spending half his time grumbling about doing the set. (laughs) <laughs> and kind of seems to have like a colon response with because they, they you know early on there are these scenes where driver is is playing a comic which he does pretty well um and you know it has a routine with the audience and that's pretty interesting although i did kind of wonder there was something a little french about some of it like i felt like is, is leo carrick also thinking of like one person show there was almost something beyond stand-up comedy to, to some of his act uh-huh you know, for one thing, he has backup singers who he can kind of summon at certain times for his stand-up set. I guess his name is Henry McHenry. And his show is called The Ape of God, <laughs> which I guess is his alternate name or whatever. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. he kind of warms up as if he's a boxer before it. He, well, he wears a bathrobe with a hood, just like De Niro in the prologue of Raging Bull, and he wears it throughout his... That's his costume for his comedy routine, right? Uh, which is kind of about boxing with yourself mm. or killing yourself by boxing with right. yourself because um, he's a really destructive and self-destructive character. I think Driver is fantastic. Yes. I mean, I just think this is an amazing, amazing, amazing performance. And the only thing that, doesn't work in terms of the film is he just annihilates anyone around him. Mm. And so there is absolutely no balance in that relationship. And Marion Cotillard, who should be an equal presence in the film, kind of vanishes. Right. And that's a real difficulty. And, you know, it's, it's about a romance that's doomed from the start. And it's doomed from the start because he hates himself. And he, in his, his performance, his stand-up is all about his own self-loathing. He can't believe that she would be interested in him. 
except that he has tapped into something that he despises about her, which is that she has made a career singing these great soprano opera roles mm. in which women either commit suicide or they are murdered. In other words, they glorify female victimhood. Mm -hmm. And so the film is kind of, I mean, Carrots, it's not that he wants to have it two ways. It really is, the film, a critique of melodrama. But because she can't pull herself out of this situation because she's so dommed by Adam Driver that that doesn't quite work. And it just ends up being that kind of melodrama where she's a total victim. Mm. So it's complicated. Which is interesting because part of the framework of, of their relationship in the story is that she is actually overshadowing him because she is... She's successful and he isn't. Yeah. I mean, he. it's funny. He, it seems like he is maybe on the cusp of some success or a break, some sort of breakout success, but she seems to be already like a star in the firmament. She's a worldwide opera star, but she, they meet when, she, I guess, she's singing in Los Angeles or something. Yeah. But the sets, all the sets of the opera look like they are happening in the productions that Pierre Boulez staged in Bayreuth of Wagner operas, hmm. that, which always were these minimalist gray sets, hmm. um, exactly the opposite of what Wagner operas used to look like and now look like all the time. Uh, and so that's kind of strange. Uh, but all her performances of opera are on that kind of stage. And I imagine they must have recorded much more than they used because she barely gets to sing three notes in any given opera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it felt like kind of a mischievous gesture to have a musical where a character is a singer, plays a singer in an opera. So the opera is like, the operas are like contained in like this larger musical. I mean, they have a montage where she kind of runs through a number of roles that I feel like I recognize. That from. montage that happens while they're driving and you mm -hmm. see them flash in front of her. Yeah, I mean, there's Butterfly and Traviata and Lucia and a bunch of operas. But actually, I think that Spark wrote the operas that you actually see her sing bits of on the stage. Oh, huh. I think that's original music. That's not any opera music I've ever heard. Huh, interesting. What did you think of the, the, the Sparks' music and songs? I think there, there are two wonderful songs in the film. The opening number, So May We Start. And it's So May We Start, May We. Mm -hmm. And May We, in English, M-A-Y-W-E, sounds exactly oh, like yeah. May We, but yes, in French. <laughs> so you've got this pun that immediately sets up, yes, this is a French-English production <laughs> of whatever. I didn't even notice that. That's really funny. <laughs> and then there's another song that's vastly overused, which is called We Love Each Other So Much, which they sing in all kinds of circumstances. One, in the most remarkable sex scene, which is all filmed in close-up of, you know, in twined limbs, very close, and Henry, 
goes down on Anne, well, they still continue to do it on this song. It's switching off. Yeah, they. I mean, it is extraordinary. It's probably the least erotic <laughs> love scene that Carrick's ever filmed because, you know, Paula X is one of the, the sex scenes in Paula X are just beyond anything I think I've ever seen. Yeah. How could we, you know, explode the idea of a duet and, you know, musicals that are about love, but in an actually show like <laughs> explicit sex, it's like... In close-up. In close-up. <laughs> yeah. And then also I felt like somehow poking fun at, at like the nudity clauses or something, because somewhat awkwardly, I felt like between that whole, through that whole sex scene, you know, um, Driver is, is covering Marion Cotillard's breasts the whole time it's just like yeah and, and she's and she's covering her own breasts half the time yeah, too, yeah which and, is really weird i mean the whole thing is so weird <laughs> it was a very weird it's kind of like the, the eccentricity of both the director and then sparks is is at play there somehow but yeah i mean, I mean we were talking about before we started recording that you know yeah there are these two strong songs and uh, also, a great deal is sort of speak song or spoke song uh, throughout. Schwetzstimmen. Um, <laughs> but it's the way people talk in musicals. So there's mm-hmm. music underneath the speech. Yeah. So that you talk in a certain way, half between singing and speaking. And most of it, the dialogue is that like that. So that when particularly Adam Driver just comes down onto his own everyday voice, Mm-hmm. It is so, without any music behind him, it is so moving. Yeah. I mean, it's so naked when he does that. And then when something that I don't want to give away happens between him and another character at the very end of the film, and suddenly those two voices are totally naked, mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. incredibly moving. Yeah. No, that's really true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think... One thing that we could talk about, because I think it happens pretty early, is that they have... A child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> kind kind of, yeah. I mean, this is this is kind of uncanny valley a, a little bit. Um, they, have, they have a child that is basically represented with a puppet. An actual puppet, which is controlled by puppet people. Yeah. And so, and this puppet looks like an incredibly sad little girl with a furrowed brow and mm. ears like howdy doody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and no one comments or even looks in the film, strangely, at the fact that this is not a seemingly human child. Right. And then after tragedy strikes, she becomes a great singer at the age of four. Mm-hmm. And we can't say any more. Which also kind of slides the movie uh, into a, a bit of another key that was sort of a surprise because, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to say too much about where, where it goes because it was a remarkable journey for me because I feel that the movie becomes darker than it admits for a while and then it sort of catches up with that darkness by, and, and then it really, really hits, hits me. or hit, The way the child is, is raised and treated at, at a certain point there's a sort of antic quality to it, a kind of, uh, you know, whirlwind quality to those turns of events with when the kid starts, uh, you know, singing, which isn't always matched by the, the mood or the tone, but then that does catch up. So it's, needless to say, probably, a strange film. 
that's dark and often, often absolutely grotesque. Yes. I mean, Driver on stage with that long mic cord that looks somehow organic. I mean, it's mm. so microphone cord that he's dragging around, which then you realize is a kind of umbilical cord when he has to cut the umbilical cord when Annette is born. Yeah. I mean, this is really, really a strange, strange movie. Yeah. And surreal would be too cliched a way to sum it up. Yeah. Um, but it comes right out of someone's, out of many people's unconscious. Yeah, and 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 Sparks. I mean, like the lyrics in Sparks songs are are often kind of wryly dark, but almost there's something about when you try to visualize what goes with them in a movie like this, you you kind of kind of appreciate the perversity uh, of it, you know. Um, so that's something kind of interesting that happened happened for me with this because they they kind of have these kind of dryly strange songs that they have often, um, but that's it's different when you're filming that or. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I mean, the like the Carrex effect for me is that there's this huge amount of anticipation, so it, the movie is, becomes this huge tightrope walk, you know. Um, and I mean, Holy Motors throws so much at you, and, and such a variety. It's such a like a, a, a virtuoso performance in different registers and, and forms. And this one, I was almost worried, like, how do you follow a movie like that that tries to do everything in some way? And it finds a way. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Holy Motors, mostly because it, the way it looked disturbed me. Mm. And I mean, I thought it was so profound, such a profoundly ugly movie. Mm. And that he wasn't necessarily coping with the ugliness of it. And here he really copes with that. And he copes, and, and the ugliness of this world that's created is the ugliness of the digital world. Mm-hmm. And that is so different from the kind of romantic lyricism of his earlier films, which was shot on film and shot on film by a great DP that he was totally in sync with. Yeah. And um, when the, you know that DP died, you know, quite young. And the same DP shot Holy Motors in this film, and they were shot digitally. Uh, and I think this film looks much more dynamic. I mean, Holy Motors for me, which is terribly drab and mm. could have been shot on an iPhone. But this film really looks like something. Uh, it's just nothing, not a world that you'd ever want to be part of. Yeah, it isn't. And, and they have these regular eruptions of this uh, showbiz gossip show as well that uh, <laughs> kind of perfectly captures the kind of queasiness of, of like celebrities under glass. Um, and I, I guess the cinematographer is Caroline Champetier or Champetier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who has shot films with everybody. Uh, it, it's kind of incredible, like, you know, Rivette and, yeah, I think she does. I agree. She does more with uh, with this film. I don't know what on earth people people in the real world. I don't know what do I say. Like that, you know. This is sort of what I thought. I mean, in a different way, in a good way, about Garrett Bradley's time. It's like it's on Amazon. That was a movie where I love the idea of people stumbling onto that, or even you know seeking it out. And 
thousands of people having access to it that way. And thousands of people loved it. Yes. Yes. People just love time. I mean, I was shocked by that, by by mm. the the numbers and the range of people who fell in love with time. This one, I mean, you have to think, why is it coming out in France today and in the U.S. the first week of August? Because Amazon wants to get it off their books as fast as possible. I hate to say that, but I think it's true. Mm. And Amazon will... You know, this is a product of the old Amazon. Hmm. Uh, Amazon will never make another film like this again. They will never, just like, the, I mean, I didn't like it the way I, I, I think, I didn't think it was as interesting as this, but they'll never make another film like the remake of Suspiria again, which they got off their books as fast as possible too. <laughs> yeah. There was the old Amazon where auteurs, you know, did really quite, had a lot of money to work with and a lot of freedom. And there is the new Amazon, which I fear probably never make anything interesting again. <laughs> this isn't a pitch that might go too far, a, a, a curdled musical or something like that. Um, <laughs> the the feel-bad musical. It's, uh, it's the New York, New York of uh, 2021 or something. Oh, no, you have to read Twitter and you have to read what Jonathan Romney said. I can't, cannot duplicate it. Okay. It, it is like, go on Twitter and see what Jonathan Romney said when he came out of the net. Okay. It's just something that just occurred to him. <laughs> and he didn't know <laughs> why. He didn't even mention the name of the film. I will. Okay. So, well, yeah. So that's, that's I mean, that's Annette, one of the more unlikely summer movies. I think it drops into theaters on the 6th of August. And it streams on Amazon the following week. So uh, people won't have to wait too long to enter its, its, enter its and, dark world. And if you were in Cannes, you could go to a normal theater and see it right now. Because it, op it opened in theaters in France at the exact moment that it played in the film festival. So, well, we've talked, I guess, about two pretty you know, high-profile uh, movies you wouldn't get more profile than higher profile than an opening film but we had one smaller film by a director who's made a few films and i guess they've all played in can either in some form whether it's critics week or other uh, sections can we take a moment to talk about that or yeah akiara akiara yeah so yeah akiara by jonas carpignano uh who is i guess an American director, but he lives in Italy. I forget. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it is. I mean, the title character is Chiara, and she is a, I guess, a teenager in a family that you grow to learn uh, the father is is involved in some sort of mafia heroin dealing. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, is a... <laughs> but you learn that pretty fast. You I guess so. That. Yeah, I guess so, and and yeah, that. Becomes... Well, you realize he's mafia. He's being the the law is after him, mm -hmm. and then it becomes specifically heroin by the middle of the movie. Yeah, and I mean, it, what was interesting to me about the movie's kind of arc or swerve in a way is that it starts with scenes that I have to admit I was kind of like, oh man, is this this is gonna sound terrible? Is this you know a kind of Italian family movie where we see these natural scenes of, you know, people hanging out or kids hanging out. And I'm, I'm just not getting as much from it as I'm 
perhaps supposed to get from it. <laughs> but of course, that's how he's setting things up as if it's this kind of ordinary family and she's just an ordinary teenager. But she, you know, makes certain discoveries. Um, and I, I think I want to, I want to, you know, leave it to you to describe it because you, you were already um, talking a bit about it on, on our last podcast together. Yeah. You know, I, if I had been watching this online, I might have turned it off in three minutes. Right. Because, you know, you got these teenage girls and they seem to be, there seem to be rival semi gangs of teenage girls meeting on the waterfront in some, in some small town in the south of Italy. And I thought, oh no. And then it gets to be really interesting, largely because of this. There are two sisters, one's 18 and one's 15, Chiara's 15. And she loves her father very much. Uh, she has this relationship with her father who behaves quite strangely at her older sister's 18th birthday party. And that's when you begin to realize that for some reason, this guy wants to keep himself invisible. But Kiara doesn't quite understand that. And she doesn't quite understand what's going on here until she has to, until something bad happens. And then she begins to investigate and look for herself, you know, what, what the life of this family is. And I just found it really, really interesting and a compelling character. And in the credits, all the people who are part of one family have the same family name. So I don't know if they're all non-professionals or what. Huh. I didn't notice that. Yeah. So I think this is a really compelling film. And it's something that I haven't seen before. And it's also something about these um, adolescent girls who begin to show a curiosity and a will to make their own lives, to understand things rather than like Kiara's older sister and her mother have learned just to keep their mouths shut and do what's expected. And she refuses to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think the film kind of resists certain things as well, you know, because there's a certain familiarity to a movie where you're realizing someone is part of the mafia and, and there's a certain rhythm to, to those beats. And I think the movie manages to steer clear of that and, and really focus on her kind of hunger for knowledge and understanding things and, and often kind of risky ways, let's say, um, and putting herself at, at risk and, and her family because, yeah, she kind of just wants to lay it all bare because she, there are going to be no pretenses uh, mm -hmm. for her and, and there's no she has no patience for any of the you know understood silences and it's I mean that's kind of like an unintentional source of comedy is watching people having to kind of work around her and, and, and try to there's for example there's like this recurring character who I guess ostensibly runs a cafe right. and she's constantly just kind of blustering it in, in there to confront him and, and find out something find out more and, you know, the film is obviously in debt to um, the Ferrante series of novels, My Brilliant Friend, mm. and then this, the TV series that's made 
from those novels, which also takes place in a mafia-run town in the south of Italy. Mm. Um, and it's about these two, uh, begins with these two girls when they're in grade school and they grow up and find out things. And so it's not like I'm seeing this for the first time, right. but I'm seeing this for the first time in in a movie. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, my brilliant friend, that's a TV series and it happens in a different place. But right. to see movies about this world that's mainly focused on a young female character, that's really interesting. Yeah. And, and I think he, Carpignano, managed to cast someone who is up for that challenge in an interesting way because the actress kind of visibly comes alive on screen. It's almost as if even her performance becomes more interesting. Absolutely. The deeper yeah. she gets into things. Like, she really um, starts acting more with, with her eyes and, and, and the camera is also looking into her eyes and showing her eyes more directly. As, as the movie goes on and there's so much there uh, all, all the all the kind of roiling of emotions about what she's learning um so that was kind of also interesting to watch um and yeah and i think he's a director i guess first film i saw was mediterraneo i think i saw it but i don't remember i believe that was a story of an immigrant who an actor who actually appears in this one briefly in a small role he's one of the people that she kind of <laughs> quizzes at one point and yeah so i, I mean, the thing i took away from mediterranean mediterranean was also kind of a nimble nimble camera work catching people uh, on the fly a little bit in a way that didn't feel like the kind of cliche that uh, you know jardin you know over the shoulder stuff had had felt at the time i remember seeing mediterranean which was whatever seven years ago <laughs> uh -huh. but anyway that's that's all just to say that I, I also liked how, how this movie looked and had a sense of motion. There's a great scene where um, she's on a scooter and they have this whole kind of loop that the scooter takes because three or four kids who are gypsies. The gypsies, yeah, and they are a gang and they are these more privileged girls, like the heroine of the film and her friends and sister. Yeah. Um, they're in fights constantly with the travelers, their counterpart, their teenage counterparts. And I think in that group, there's another Carpignano player, an actor, I think has been in a couple of films of his. Uh -huh. The guy who says, we weren't doing anything. We just, it was an accident. We didn't mean to throw a firecracker uh -huh. at you. Um, but yeah, that's, that was um, Akia. That must be in Fortnite because it's not coming up in the main. Yeah, I think list. it's in the Fortnite. Yeah. Akia also, yeah, in, the, in this first week showing in this first week. And there's another film about young girl, which is Ari Folman's Anne Frank film. Yes. Ari Folman is, uh, I guess his best known film is also an animated film. Waltz with Bashir, which is a film I like very much. Yeah, me too. This film is, the narrative is more difficult because it's more fanciful. The thing about Waltz with Bashir is it's based on a real event and it's a real event of a war, which is horrific. This is a kind of fanciful story that Kitty, the imaginary friend that Anne Frank writes her diary to, is living in the Anne Frank house in today's world 
in Amsterdam. And she believes that because she's alive somehow, Anne is also still alive, and she goes looking for her. And she meets a Peter who is not the Peter of Anne Frank's diaries, who becomes Anne Frank's boyfriend, but a modern kind of punk political activist, Peter. And, you know, the film is in part about the fetishization of Anne Frank, Mm -hmm. which Fulman is pretty critical of, and how in that fetishization and how people feel good going to the Anne Frank Museum and watching the Anne Frank plays and all of that, they lose sight of the fact that in Amsterdam, there is a huge population of African migrants who are there on very tentative ground, about to be deported any minute. And I think the moment that the film really comes to life is when Kitty and Peter meet up and go to the house or a house where these migrants are living. And suddenly the colors in the film change Mm. and it becomes incredibly vibrant. And the animation does as well. And at the very end, the film becomes about Peter and Kitty's activism in trying to keep these migrants from being jailed and deported. And although it's very short in the film, that part of it, it's also the film's reason for being. Mm. Um, And after not knowing really what I thought about it for a long time, I ended up liking it quite a lot. Hmm. I have to say that that the way you laid out the movie is kind of more appealing to than the way I had assembled it in my head when I, because when I was watching it I, I I kept kind of pushing back at the points when it felt like it was reaching for kind of animated movie comedy moments um, or kind of broad humor or the kind of adventure moments uh-huh. that made it hard for me to appreciate what was going on. But I, I mean, I, I agree. Fullman is critical of the... This feel-good industry, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. It's this weird form of metonymy where what it represents actually disappears. <laughs> right. So it's it's just the Anne experience and it's this self-contained, has the ability of making invisible um, everything else. I think the other thing that felt strange to me was the fact that the heroine is a fictional character and the reason is because she is actually learning about a lot of the, of the history herself. And something about that was weird to me that it would be a fictional character who was ignorant of the history. Or maybe it was actually really clever. Especially since Anne wrote her diary to this character. Right. Yeah. Something about that was odd. I mean, I don't know if that's maybe like a nimble way of the movie teaching because i do think this is a movie that's what was it it was it was funded right by the uh and frank foundation i think or something yeah um so some aspect of it is educational or something like that maybe that is just a kind of elegant way in some way of having the naive narrator without having it be offensive that the narrator is naive if that makes sense right right but yeah that was something i was kind of working through uh during the movie Mm mm-hmm
Yeah, and like, you know, characters in certain kinds of fantasies or fairy tales, there are rules about what she has to do in order not to completely dematerialize or right, disappear that stuff. and all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, and which is pretty much of a drag. But I just thought the last, like, 20 minutes of the movie were, was really good. And I will tell you, that's all I really ask for most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, a movie that, that comes together in, in a good way goes a long way. So that is, Where is Anne Frank? Where is Anne Frank is the title, yes. But, uh, yeah, so that's, yeah, Where is Anne Frank? And all from the first week of the festival. And yeah, so we'll talk again soon uh, and have a happy can away from camp. <laughs> Same to you, Nick. Okay. Have a happy can away from camp. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> all right, signing off. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.